DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, I feel as if I start off every week making the same statement, which is this is going to be a truly big week in politics for Georgia and the country. Of course, runoff elections uh, tomorrow will fix the ballot for the November uh, general election. Uh, But just as important, if not more so, uh, tomorrow Georgia takes center stage when uh, Brad Raffensperger uh, testifies, uh, presumably about the phone call Uh, from Donald Trump and other ways in which uh, the former president tried to pressure him and Gabriel Sterling, who will also be there, his chief lieutenant, into uh, going along with his efforts to overturn the result of the Georgia election. So uh, a lot to talk about. Georgia at the center of a lot of very important news this week. So let me introduce the panel right away and uh, get going, Uh, starting with Patricia Murphy, my Monday partner, on the AJC. You read Patricia's column uh, on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper. And of course, she oversees the jolt at AJC.com. Hi, Patricia. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. Glad to have you here. Um, Rick Dent is back with us. Rick Dent is the vice president of Matrix Communications, a government relations firm. But Rick's been in politics for a very, very long time. Uh, going back to his days in Alabama with, uh, I think, is Don Seligman, Seligman the last Democratic governor of Alabama? Is that is that right, Rick, when you were there with him? He was, and the only one since George Wallace. Yeah, oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> oh, there you go. There's a famous Democrat for you. Um, yeah. And Rick went on to work with uh, Zell Miller uh, as his communications director when Zell was governor here in Georgia. Andre Gillespie, professor of political science and uh, director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University with us as well. And Andre, I saved you for last for a very specific reason. Um, I, I'd love to ask you, as in your role as director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute, here we are today for the first time commemorating Juneteenth as both a national and a Georgia state holiday. And I use the word commemorate intentionally because I think there are a lot of people who think celebrate is just an inappropriate word. But I would love for you, if you don't mind, take a minute or so to tell us what the significance of this day is as a holiday uh, in both the state and the, and, and the country. Well, it is an acknowledgement of the fact that there was slavery and that it had to be ended. Um, to the extent that it can be celebrated, it, it celebrates the agency and the freedom that uh, slaves in Texas uh, sort of walked into uh, once they were finally told two years later about the Emancipation Proclamation and how they were told two months after uh, the surrender at Appomattox that the Civil War was over. And so, you know, I think that there's a, a lesson there to be told about misinformation. Um, slave owners 
uh, who, you know, held most of the cards in that situation, had an incentive to not tell their slaves. And they were trying not to tell them because they wanted to get one more harvest in um, to let them know about their freedom. So we have to talk about what lies uh, amongst people in power look like in the situation. But then you can also talk about sort of the joy in people being able to walk in their freedom. You know, as we uh, get used to celebrating this as a national holiday, I think uh, the traditions are going to have to come around. So people in Texas and, and part of that Texas diaspora have been celebrating this, you know, for, for, for generations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I think the big thing that we have to think about now is do we turn this into a Hallmark holiday, one where, you know, you get a white sale out of it, or do we actually take this seriously to celebrate African-American culture? And so there's a lot of concern um, amongst a, a lot of, you know, blacks who are kind of in the public sphere about whether or not this is going to end up becoming something that's commercialized. Um, and so I think that there's that tension there. And then there's also the tension in which this comes. So we get Juneteenth as a result of uh, the, uh, the protest for racial justice in 2020 after the death of George Floyd. Um, and while a holiday is great, there are people who actually want real substantive legislation to try to ameliorate racial discrimination um, in all aspects of American society, and, you know, in criminal justice in particular. So, you know, this is a, this is a step. It's an acknowledgement. It is incomplete. I think it shows the limits of symbolic politics. But and I think we all have to figure out how we're going to acknowledge and, 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 and recognize this day going forward. And we're in the process of watching those traditions emerge. Thank you uh, for those comments. For those of you who were not with us on Friday, we did a special hour on Juneteenth uh, talking about the his- history and what led to our being at a point where we're now commemorating the day, but also talking about a promise unfulfilled and all, all that needs to be done, which essentially Andrew refers to as well. So I, if you haven't heard that show, you can go back and it's on our website. Uh, at gpb.org, and it's also um, on our podcast, so it may be worth uh, your while. Um, Okay, so Patricia, let's move right into talking about the runoffs. And I'd like to start uh, with the Democratic side, because uh, Stacey Abrams made an interesting decision. She's decided that she wants to jump in and make endorsements in several key down-ballot statewide races. Uh, So she uh, has uh, uh, endorsed for Lieutenant uh, Governor Charlie Bailey, for Secretary of State B. Wynn, and uh, for Labor Commissioner William Baudy, all three of whom obviously have opposition because they're in a runoff uh, tomorrow. Talk about why do you think uh, Stacey Abrams made that decision, what the uh, significance of it is, and um, how it could create some friction moving forward. Well, I think it's very significant because it's the first time we're seeing her really put her own political capital on the line for other statewide candidates and Mm -hmm. really exert herself visibly. Now, she has been working behind the scenes quite a bit and, in fact, was part of the group to get Charlie Bailey to move into that lieutenant governor's race for the Democrats and thereby clearing the way for um, Jen Jordan to have that attorney general's race by herself on the Democratic ticket. So um, if these three do not come through for her, um, I think that will be a little bit of a mark against her and her what is assumed to be just absolutely 
um, almost unquestioned sway among the Democratic primary electorate. I think she does hold huge sway among those voters. This will be a very specific group of voters who will come back out to the polls in June for um, kind of lower profile uh, Democratic runoffs. So that's going to be the very group that is really plugged into the state Democratic apparatus and probably pays quite a bit of attention um, to what Stacey Abrams has to say. I think it's interesting, especially in the lieutenant governor's race and in the secretary of state's race, she has endorsed against black candidates. And um, that is uh, only to say uh, I think she is so um, so associated with being such a an iconic uh, woman, black woman in politics, um, that it I I feel like it takes her the next step further to be sort of a a power player in politics beyond the symbolism, but to the real power of what's involved in the race that she's running. Rick, um, you have run a lot of campaigns over the years, and some of them, I'm sure, have uh, been uh, low turnout elections that you had to struggle with. We imagine tomorrow turnout is going to be very low, I think. If you think I'm wrong, please tell me. So in a very, very low turnout race, um, you would imagine, yes, that Stacey Abrams' endorsement uh, could motivate voters or no? Uh, you would think that. Uh, Patricia's right. You expect those who come out in a um, runoff situation to be a little bit more knowledgeable. But even then, you know, voters like to pick a governor and a senator by themselves, but they look for guidance on lower ballot uh, races. And so an endorsement of that type, you would think, would have a major influence on those outcomes. Maybe not. The other influence should be that the biggest voting bloc that's going to be in the Democratic primary is African-American. So you would think Stacey Abrams pointing to certain candidates might be enough of a signal to actually get them over. I'll be honest, in a uh, down-ballot race, and maybe she did, I'd much rather have Stacey's money and write me a big check than just give me the endorsement. That would help me a lot. <laughs> Andra? Well, I, I, th- I think that uh, Patricia and, and, and Rick raised a, a number of issues. When we think about turnout, um, yeah, this is probably going to be a really low turnout election. Um, you know, there are Democrats who participated in the Republican primary who can't come back and, 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 and vote in this runoff election. Uh, people are probably sort of in full swing in terms of their summer plans and may have forgotten about this and may not be around just to turn off tomorrow. And so what this does is that this actually narrows the pool. It actually makes mobilization easier because you can identify the people who are more likely to show up uh, to vote tomorrow um, and identify those who maybe have already participated in early voting. Um, and that's good for all of the candidates who probably prefer this situation than the, the more free-for-all types of situations with larger electorates. That does create opportunities for the non-Abrams-endorsed candidates if their statewide network is strong, if their GOTV effort is strong, to be able to uh, uh, give uh, the Abrams back candidates a run for their money. But we'd have to see exactly sort of how well and, and how far their reach goes, particularly beyond Metro Atlanta. So that'll be really interesting. I think this also speaks to sort of the issue of, of, of who Abrams is as a candidate uh, nationally. 
she's black because that's how Republicans have tainted her. And that's all that they kind of tend to focus on. Mm. Um, but as we were, as I was talking about, I think the last time I was on this show, she's actually a transcendent candidate. And I think putting together a multiracial uh, kind of team also makes that it's also a young team. Right. So relatively speaking, I mean, we're talking about the difference between relatively young Xers and old Xers. Uh, but uh, she's put together uh, the types of teams that actually got me interested in studying black candidates and the positions that they take um, in the mid to late 2000s. So you're looking at, you know, folks who were uh, born a little bit later, who uh, tend to have a little bit more of a neoliberal kind of perspective and point of view um, running against establishment, particularly in the races where uh, she's not endorsed black candidates, running against more establishment black politicians who are representative of an older guard, an older generation of, of black leadership. So it's fascinating to watch. Yeah, Patricia, uh, if, if uh, Stacey Abrams' candidates don't win, or a couple of them don't win, one of them doesn't win, uh, it's hard, though, to imagine uh, that leading to some kind of disunity among Democrats moving toward the general election. I mean, I think they are all agreed that they need to win these races, uh, regardless of what Stacey Abrams may have done to sort of create divisions going into the runoff election. Yeah, I think that's definitely the assumption, but it really is up to each candidate she has endorsed yeah. against to decide to come back to the table. Obviously, it would be in their best interest. Um, as Rick alluded to, she has enormous money. She has enormous um, sway. She has a built-in grassroots operation that has been built over years and years. So she has so many assets and attributes that any statewide candidate would benefit from. Um, but, you know, it, politics is a game of egos, and you just have to get over the fact that someone has tried to get you not elected <laughs> and move on um, and try and win in November uh, in order to access all of those things that Abrams can give you. <laughs> Um, let, let me, let's, while the ball's in your court, Patricia, t start us off talking about one of those races, and that's the lieutenant governor race between Kwanzaa Hall and Charlie Bailey. Clearly a very important uh, uh, race uh, for the fall where you've got um, uh, a Burt Jones, an election denier uh, who's geo on the GOP side of this thing. Um, Charlie Bailey has gotten these very important endorsements from people like Shirley Franklin, he, and now Stacey Abrams. He's very well thought of in, in many Democratic circles. Kwanzaa Hall has avoided talking to the media. He didn't participate in debates at all. Um, and yet he, this, and tell me if I'm wrong, there's a sense that he really is in a competitive position in this race. Well, he's in a very competitive position. He won yeah. the most votes on election day. Yes. Um, and so, you know, he has a much smaller, uh, much smaller amount of ground to make up than Charlie Bailey does. And Charlie Bailey is definitely the favorite of those insiders. Governor Barnes came out for him. Obviously, Stacey Abrams mm -hmm. came out for him. They deliberately put him in that race. Um, believing that he would be the best candidate against somebody like a Burt Jones. Um, he also worked in the lieutenant governor's office in a past life, so has a little bit of Hill experience. But Kwanzaa Hall, although he has been very strangely below the radar in terms of media since Election Day, he is well known, um, having uh, been on the Atlanta City Council, having actually won that 5th District race to succeed John Lewis, 
um, only for about 30 days in the U.S. House, but he did run um, here in the 5th District and ran a very high-profile campaign for that race uh, mm-hmm. very recently in 2020. So he is a, um, a pretty well-known quantity and certainly was well-known enough um, and well-regarded enough uh, to um, to win the most votes. Um, his uh, commercials are really interesting as well. Um, talks quite a bit about um, directing state resources and contracts to minority contractors um, and is uh, uh, making a very clear play for African-American voters who obviously fueled his win in the 5th District race as well. So um, Charlie Bailey uh, focuses more on his role as a former prosecutor. um, And uh, although he did run, he also ran statewide in uh, 2018, ran for attorney general um, and finished just a hair behind Chris Carr. So did win a lot of votes. But um, those lower ballot races, as Rick said, really tend to be sort of swept across the finish line rather than fueled across by people who actually know who you are. So um, it's fascinating. But Kwanzaa Hall, um, in a weird way, seems to have the momentum on this one. Rick? I know the I know in the attorney general's race there's a white candidate. I, I think Charlie Bailey is really important to the ticket. When I look at anything we talk about, issues, public policy, I only look at it in one way. What gets me the most votes and what takes votes away from my opponent? Charlie Bailey I think is important to Democrats for two reasons. Number one, it's math. No matter how much money Democrats have, no matter what kind of turnout they get, they have to win a certain percentage of white voters or they cannot win statewide, period, period. It's math. Um, Number two, I don't think Democrats want to look like they have abandoned white support and voters. And having Charlie and Jen... On that ballot, I think, undercuts a Republican argument, which is they have abandoned you, white people. Don't vote for them. Vote for us. And so from a purely math perspective and political perspective, I think Charlie is really important in terms of being on that ballot for Democrats. Andrew, weigh in on that. Um, I mean, I, that, that's what uh, I, I was referring to uh, for when I talked about Abrams being more transcendent than I think a lot of people give her credit for being, yep. right? And she's also being particularly strategic here um, in terms of not pigeonholing herself by saying, you know, she only supports black candidates because they're black. She's being strategic and supporting candidates that she thinks are going to be the most viable going forward. Um, in a general election. And so I think a lot of us have kind of believed the hype that she is some kind of cutout of Bernie Sanders or, you know, the next member of the squad if she were going to go to the House of Representatives. That's never been who she was politically. And we as Georgians actually should be the ones to know better than that, right? But she's just, you know, she's doing the things that you would expect a smart politician to do in um, these types of circumstances. And so, you know, the endorsements actually make a, a lot of sense, right? She's going for younger Gen X millennial politicians, right, who are going to have a broad based appeal. It's multiracial to reflect the fact that Georgia's uh, Democratic coalition is multiracial. That's the only way that it wins, right? Can't win just on black votes when they make up 30 percent. 
um, of, of, of the electorate. Um, and she's uh, going forward with people who, I, just because she's worked with them before, also she has really strong working relationships with. So, you know, Charlie Bailey was somebody she ran with in 2018. Dean Wen succeeded her um, in the House of Representatives. So, you know, a lot of this makes a whole lot of sense. Um, and, and, and so, you know, it'll be really interesting to see uh, which side, the Abrams camp or the non-Abrams camp, does the best job bringing people out because that's going to determine who gets that nomination tomorrow. All right. Um, I, thank you for that conversation. I want to look now at the uh, Republican side of the runoff elections where we've got several congressional runoffs in at least two of those districts. The winner of the runoff is almost assured of going to uh, Congress. Uh, in the third one, you, you, there's a better chance than there used to be. That would be down in the second district. But what, let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way and then come back and discuss uh, the Republican side of the runoffs tomorrow. This is Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Andrew Gillespie, Rick Dent, and Patricia Murphy joined me for this uh, pre-runoff Election Day edition of Political Rewind. Uh, Patricia, so we've got three runoffs in congressional races on the Republican side, the 10th, the 6th, and the 2nd. In a way, I hesitate to do it because it's been such an awful, awful race. But let's start with the 10th, where you have uh, Vernon Jones— the longtime Democrat, who is now a, Repu- a Trump Republican, uh, facing off against Mike Collins, the son of a, a former member of uh, Congress from Georgia, Matt Collins. I would, you were probably on the Hill when Matt Collins was in Congress up there, Patricia, yes? Yes, I definitely was. And so um, Mac Col- Mike Collins, rather, is a very familiar um, person, obviously a very familiar name to anybody who has been around uh, Georgia politics, especially Georgia Republican politics. Um, but this race has just gotten unbelievably nasty, uh, specifically because, and I think this happens quite a bit, when you have two candidates with similar political profiles and political promises to voters, you start to really look to make those contrasts and, in some cases, attacks um, on personal issues and uh, personal backgrounds. And Vernon Jones has been an absolute um, feast, if you will, for the Mike Collins campaign to go in and pull out the fact that he was a Democrat until very recently, that he voted against the heartbeat bill, um, but then also has gotten into quite a bit of his legal problems, legal issues. And the Collins campaign and his super PAC supporting him have also just been overtly uh, racial, uh, discussing, um, actually calling Vernon Jones a radical anti-white racist, and um, also uh, really just insinuating quite a bit about Vernon Jones. 
saying that he has an alternative lifestyle, uh, has never been married, has no children. Um, and these are mailers that are showing up in 10th District mailboxes every day. Huge, glossy. A lot of them have the Collins campaign um, on them. They're paid for by the Collins campaign in, in many cases. And so it is just an overtly ugly, aggressive race. Um, that is to counter the Donald Trump endorsement down there um, and also uh, to get voters' attention. Again, it's going to be a very low turnout. And so you want to both get your own voters out and depress any potential vote for uh, the other guy. And that's what's going on here. So I know, Andra, a couple times on the show, you as the political scientist have uh, cautioned us not to read too much into any one race where Donald Trump endorsed a candidate has won it. You're more interested in the overview that you'll get after all of the primaries are over with. That said, uh, we do have a Vernon uh, Jones-Trump endorsement here, although Trump has not seemed to play much of an active role in promoting Vernon uh, Jones. So... What do you imagine the impact of a Trump will be in that very conservative district, which, by the way, is the district where Brian Kemp votes? And uh, he, of course, has endorsed Mike Collins. Andra? So and I think the Trump endorsement got Vernon Jones into that runoff. Um, under normal circumstances, he shouldn't have been a top two finisher in a district he doesn't live in and has no connections to. Um, and the fact that, you know, he, you know, is a former Democrat until recently and has all kinds of skeletons in his closet. They weren't even actually even in his closet. They were just thrown all over the room and everybody knew about them. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, I think that this goes to show that a Trump endorsement isn't a panacea. It doesn't sort of like fix all of the other problems that a candidate brings to the table, which is why this was another emotional um, endorsement decision by Donald Trump that actually wasn't rooted in any real strategy or common sense. So, yeah, it got him to the runoff. Um, You know, I can't endorse or condone the sort of, you know, uh, you know, racially tinged personal attacks or attacks, you know, implied attacks on his sexuality. Um, but, you know, it, it's just the idea that, like, Vernon Jones can't overcome all of the problems that make Jones such a controversial and problematic figure. And there was no way that a Trump endorsement was going to clean all of that up. And, you know, we'll see what happens tomorrow. But, you know, at the end of the day, we'll probably say the other fundamentals matter. Endorsements help. But if you've got other problems against you, like people think you're difficult to work with, you've had all kinds of legal challenges running against you, you used to be part of the other party, and you have a habit of doing and a pattern of opportunistic behavior that most people roll their eyes against, yeah, that makes you a weak candidate, and that's probably why you lost, more, more so than, you know, Donald Trump endorsed you, and, and, and that doesn't seem to play well here in Georgia. I had read that uh, the Trump PAC had only spent about ten grand on yeah. Vernon Jones' behalf. So I think that's yeah. a signal right there that he's probably not really involved. Now, here's what I love about this race. race. God, I said rape because I was about to talk about rape whistles. The fact that the Collins campaign put out rape whistles with Vernon Jones' name on it is absolutely, y'all going to hate me for this, brilliant. It's just absolutely brilliant. But what I love about this Republican primary is this. Okay, maybe there were a rape allegation. That doesn't disqualify you. Uh, he's a racist. Nope, that doesn't disqualify you. 
Oh, no, he's a Democrat. Oh, hell, not, don't vote for him. <laughs> not a Democrat. That, that's, what I, that's what I love about that race. That's what I love about that race. <laughs> Rick, I th thank you for uh, <laughs> that insight. Um, it, it, and look, that's why talking about this race is just, it, it feels dirty to even talk about it. But the fact of the matter is it's unfolding and we can't ignore it completely. Although, Rick, I do have to say that it, it takes me back a long way in politics. I remember covering the Gary Hart campaign in 1987 when it was shocking that uh, it became a public issue that Gary Hart had a habit of philanderer. He was a philanderer, and we were all wow. dumbfounded that that would become an issue back in the, the olden days of politics, Rick. That's right, and the, he was the first to be written about by mainstream media. Exactly, exactly. All right, well, we'll watch how that race unfolds. What about the 6th District, uh, Patricia, where you've got uh, emergency room uh, physician Rich McCormick uh, back to uh, try to uh, win the opportunity to be in the general election against Jake Evans. And once again, here's a race where uh, Trump is weighed in. Jake Evans is the son of Randy Evans, who is a very, very prominent attorney involved in conservative Republican politics. He was Newt Gingrich's attorney for a very, very long time. How is that race shaping up? Well, I think the most important thing to know about this race are the district lines that have been redrawn to create this race. Um, it was redrawn by the General Assembly and redistricting this year. And so it has gone from a Lucy McBath stronghold to something that will most likely be represented by a Republican um, after Tuesday. And um, that takes the Georgia delegation from six to eight to five to nine, a five-nine split from Republicans to Democrats. This was drawn expressly for that purpose. So you have the competition for this race in the Republican primary, not in the general election where it's been decided the last two cycles. And so um, you have Jake Evans, the, he's an attorney. He's the son of Randy Evans, as you said, very high-profile uh, Republican national fundraiser, very close with Donald Trump. And this has been uh, just a, a race the entire time to get that Trump endorsement for Jake Evans, really by his dad, um, the effort being made there. It's the only way you can say it. Uh, his father has put hundreds of thousands of dollars into a super PAC supporting Jake Evans. Um, on the other side, you have uh, Rich McCormick, who's an ER doctor, ran in the 7th District in 2020, yeah. barely lost to Carolyn Bordeaux, and has now moved over to the 6th, deciding that's a much better pickup opportunity. Both of these guys are incredibly conservative. Jake Evans is just unapologetically MAGA, 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 at every twist and turn. Um, I would say Rich McCormick has been a little bit more nuanced in his approach to how conservative can a person get. Um, but uh, it's, it's a run to the right in this race, which is fascinating for a district that had been known until nine months ago as the example of a district turning from red to blue and becoming more diverse and uh, thereby giving Democrats an opportunity, which has been erased by the General Assembly this year. It, yeah, and now it is uh, quite likely that the winner of that runoff goes on to Congress uh, in, in the fall. It's a Republican district. I want to talk about the second in a minute, but Andra, I didn't give you a chance. You, you were interested in the conversation that I was having with Rick about 
uh, all these charges of Vernon Jones uh, allegedly having been, been a, a rapist at one point. And I, th I think you wanted to uh, add something to that. And I, I want to give you that chance before we talk about the second. Oh, yeah, no, I didn't add anything to that. I think one of the things, I do want to talk about the 6th District. Um, oh, okay. The, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that, that, that is interesting is that, of course, in a primary, you would expect that there would be a run to the right to talk about people's Republican bona fides. Um, but I think what's so shocking here is just the idea of the way that the word rhino gets bandied about, even when it's completely inappropriate. Mm -hmm. To do so. So the idea that Jake Evans would go after Rich McCormick and say that he's a rhino because he has support from people in the American Medical Association and his professional field, and he has support from other doctors, uh, you know, is, is just crazy because, I mean, yes, even though the AMA supported Obamacare, right, this is not sort of a position where you would be like, therefore, he clearly can't be a good Republican, right? He's got to be a good doctor professionally, and so his, he's got to maintain good relationships with people in the AMA. So, I mean, I just think sometimes the logic to which people are trying to sort of uh, besmirch the reputations of their candidates is actually somewhat crazy in, in these circumstances. And, you know, given the fact that Jake Evans has the uh, has the Trump endorsement, you know, it, it's the same problem that, that, that David Perdue faced. Uh, it's that you, you can call Brian Kemp a rhino all you want, but that doesn't make it true. And I think the same thing has been true here. And I think it's actually been really interesting to talk or to see some of the ads in the 6th District where Evans is bringing up culture war issues where clearly they are on the same side of the issue. But he's tried to paint McCormick um, in, 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 you know, in, in, in colors that actually like, do not reflect uh, you know, where he thinks. And, and so I think the big question is whether or not voters in the district actually buy that you know, and, and can see through that. Okay, um, thank you for that. Let's talk a little bit about the 2nd District GOP runoff, Rick, uh, because it's... There, there are some really fascinating uh, developments in that race as well. But just to remind people, that's southwest Georgia. Um, Sanford Bishop has been the Democratic congressman there for like basically three decades. But the district lines have been redrawn so that a Republican could, in fact, beat Sanford Bishop in the fall. We'll see. It's still going to be, I think, a competitive race. But, but Rick, here's what's really made this thing a, a little bit more interesting uh, you've got the third place finisher in that race, Wayne Johnson. Uh, we talked about this on the show with Chuck Williams the other day, has now sued Fox News, accusing them of racketeering and conspiracy because for months running up, leading up to the, the election itself on May 24th, Fox News repeatedly had the guy who came in first, Jeremy Hunt, on their air they seem to be promoting him. They gave almost no airplay to the other candidates. And, and now you've got a lawsuit uh, in this thing. Uh, react to that, Rick. Well, first of all, <laughs> if I had known you could sue media and, and reporters for not covering your campaign properly, <laughs> I, I, would have, I would have sued the Atlanta Journal-Constitution several times by now. Instead, I, I just yelled at I just yelled at editors and reporters. So if he wins, I'm telling you, if there's no statute of limitations, I got some lawsuits waiting. Um, <laughs> the interesting thing with Hunt is he's uh, a young conservative African American. That's a unicorn for conservatives. 
And the reason he's on Fox News so much is because he is a visual proof point for conservatives that we believe in opportunity for all. That's the nice way of putting it. So that's why he is on Fox so much. He led. It'll be interesting to see if he can win that primary. Um, but it's really the fact that he's a young, conservative African-American, and they've kind of propped him up there. And I don't know if this lawsuit has a, a, a chance in hell, but again, if it does, I'll be at the courthouse the next day. <laughs> Andre? I, I, I agree 100% uh, with, with Rick. Um, and so, I mean, structurally, there are a couple of things to think about. It was like, you know what? Republicans really like deregulation. I think, you know, a lot of us did, especially when it came to the media. So all that equal time stuff that you remember from the 1950s, right? Like that hasn't been the case, uh, you know, for a generation here in the United States. And the truth of the matter is, if it were, Fox News and MSNBC couldn't exist. So, right, like that's the price you pay is that people make choices about ratings. Um, people make choices about who picks up the phone. People make choices about who knows, like, the right producer. Um, and I think that, um, you know, Rick is absolutely right that part of the uh, novelty and notoriety of having Jeremy Hunt on Fox News was the fact that he's African-American. Um, and so, you know, this may be a way to uh, complain ab- about this without actually bringing up race. But, you know, this is the sort of media world that uh, we have created uh, that in other instances has, has worked for people. So you can't, you know, complain when it doesn't work out for you in this one particular case. The other thing that I, I would add um, is, is, is that, you know, it's, I, I get it sort of, you know, when you're in third place, right, you could have, would have, should have. So it's not like being in last place. Um, but, like, also people make uh, decisions about what to cover based on sort of how viable candidates are perceived. And so you're asking a very kind of circular question about what caused what first. What we know from the literature is people tend to be self-selective in terms of what they choose to watch, and they watch things that tend to reinforce what they already think. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, people can be primed to think about certain things, and certainly if you're an unknown candidate, getting some name recognition helps. Uh, but we also have to recognize the limits of people uh, influencing uh, kind of what you think in this situation. So I think it's going to be really hard for him to make the causal argument that seeing this, uh, seeing Jeremy Hunt on TV made people more likely to support him than they would have otherwise if he hadn't. And then also just think about the strategy. He's got to run against a, a black, you know, incumbent Democratic yeah. candidate. That would have made Hunt a more viable candidate, like, you know, to begin with just on the basis of descriptive representation. So, you know, I'm sorry, yeah. but, like, sometimes it's just like Gary Black at the Senate level. Like, yeah, sometimes it just doesn't work out for you. <laughs> so reading the complaint is just fascinating because um, uh, uh, Wayne uh, – Wayne, I'm sorry, will you remind me of his last name? Johnson. Well, I Johnson. thought it was Wayne Johnson. Wayne Johnson um, and his attorneys go through why they think, um, above and beyond news value, it has given Jeremy Hunt an unfair advantage. And he uh, only recently registered to vote in Columbus. He had not. He had lived in Atlanta uh, before February and moved down there to run in this race after it was redistricted. Um, and he was, you know, essentially unknown and vaulted to the top of the pack based um, largely on name ID from being on Fox News. And the banners when he was on said, 
Jeremy Hunt pushes for American first. And he would be on air and saying, you can find out. He was on to talk about The View, a sort of a scandal about The View. He said, and you can find out more about my campaign at JeremyHunt.com. You know, so they're saying this is an un- unfair opportunity to fundraise and get in front of those conservative voters. And so it's a pretty novel. And to, to Rick's point, um, if he wins, if it even gets anywhere, there will be lots of other people lining up to make similar arguments. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's do this. Let's get to our final break of the show. When we come back, I want to talk about a Patricia Murphy column uh, on uh, Herschel Walker and his diehard supporters. We'll do that in just a moment. Patricia Murphy, uh, your, I think it's your most recent uh, column, uh, Political Insider column. You mm-hmm. write about uh, Herschel Walker, and I thought your lead was particularly good. Uh, in, and here's what you said. One fact about Herschel Walker is true. Republicans have no idea who they just nominated in the GOP primary to run against U.S. Senator Raphael Warnock in November. And you're speaking to the fact that we have seen one revelation after another about Herschel Walker's personal life. Now uh, we know that not only did he have a second son that we hadn't known about until very recently, but two more children beyond that have emerged. But the point of your column is you have seen no evidence in your conversations with uh, Republican voters that that has any impact on how they feel about him as a candidate. Yes, and I would say it's on a on a certain group of Republican voters who feel like they have known Herschel Walker all of his life and almost all of their own lives. And he has that certain celebrity factor um, and level of affinity among some Republicans and even some Democrats here in the state, but mostly Republicans, that there's nothing you can tell them that will change or diminish their opinion of Herschel Walker. And that is just an incredibly valuable asset in a political situation, because anything that comes out about them, true or not, on the AJC, it's true, I will tell you that, um, doesn't matter. And I just had, it is so familiar to covering Donald Trump in 2016, um, Mm -hmm. when all kinds of revelations came out about him, the types of things, especially about his own personal life and his own personal conduct with women that, you know, reporters think should affect voters' opinions of somebody. And they just simply did not. And so Herschel Walker has that quality, and I wanted to write about that. Um, it doesn't mean that he is going to win, but it does mean that there, it, there are there a group of people who love Herschel Walker who will not hear anything else, um, but there will be more, and we know that, and that's the point, is that Republicans have this incredibly popular candidate who they don't really know about his background, and they'll find out more as, the time, as time goes on. Rick, no sooner had uh, Patricia Murphy hit the publish button on that column than Herschel Walker appeared at the annual Faith and Freedom Coalition conference in Nashville, Faith and Freedom Coalition being Ralph Reed's organization, and he was received with uh, tumultuous applause and warmth. Uh, Rick, what's going on here? Well, number one, they believe in forgiveness. Don't don't forget that. Um, (laughs) Number two, we, we are... We are two tribes. We don't care about the baggage of our candidate, whether he's a liar, 
racist mental issues. As I said before, he's not a Democrat. That's all that matters to me, and and vice vice versa. Where this can get dangerous for Herschel Walker is these kinds of problems are not catastrophic. They used to be, but they're not anymore. But Georgia is so split down the middle that we're, as you've heard me say before, we're not talking about yards, we're not talking about feet, we're talking about inches. And if you can shade a 1,000 votes here and a 1,000 votes there, you could lose because of this. Uh, the biggest concern for Herschel Walker is not Republicans deciding they're going to vote for Warnock. That's not going to happen. What is dangerous for Herschel Walker is for a certain number of Republicans to skip his race and not vote in it and move on down. That could be costly. Again, inches, not catastrophic. Andra? I agree with Rick. Um, I think it, Herschel Walker's downfall, if it comes to that, um, and, you know, and I qualify that, like, this race is going to be close, we can't predict what's going to happen, is that it's going to be death by a thousand cuts. So it's not that this one thing is going to be, like, you know, the thing that does Walker in. It's that if this keeps on happening, like, every week or every other week for the rest of the cycle, maybe cumulatively, that peels off enough Um uh, moderate Republican votes, independent votes who just choose that they don't want to have anything uh, to do with that. Um, I think that for the, your hardcore Republicans, one negative partisanship prevails here. He's wearing the right color jersey. Um, and so they're going to stick with that regardless. And I think people have come up with a narrative about Walker and redemption that has been supported by sort of his public persona. So this is somebody who, um, and I say this as a member of, of the evangelical community, um, as somebody who has been, you know, front and center on Christian television for years, even after his football career. So people feel that they know him and that these are aberrations. And even, you know, some of the things that, you know, we're hearing about, about kids that we didn't know anything about, right? <laughs> people are taking him at face value when he says that he supported them, even if there may be some evidence to suggest to the contrary. Um, but, you know, it's also not unheard of for, you know, professional athletes to have children with multiple women so and multiple children. So, you know, I think people have come up with their ways to rationalize what would be disqualifying, even still for other people. If, if Walker were an unknown candidate, all of these things about him would have been disqualifying from the get-go. So whether it's the mm. kids, whether it is the mental illness, whether it is uh, the comments on policy issues that appear nonsensical, right, like all of that stuff would have been a non-starter. But when people know you already, they make allowances for you, and they can actually read and hear what you're trying to say. Um, and, and, and then sort of impute whatever, they, whatever else they want onto it in order to justify their decision. And that's what we're seeing here. Uh, yes, I completely agree with Andra. Um, in terms of talking about just shaving off a bit of the support for Herschel Walker, we've already seen an unusual situation in that in the GOP primary, Governor Kemp um, won with 72%, and Herschel Walker won with 68%. He won with a significantly, an important, not significant, maybe a relevant fewer number of votes than Governor Kemp did. Those should have been the same voters in theory. And then I think the second piece is that we know that Republicans want to make inroads into the black community. I think they believe that Herschel Walker is a, an unbelievable opportunity to do that. 
But when you have Herschel Walker criticizing the black community and black fathers in particular for being absentee fathers, which he has done on many occasions, while also having this in his background and not being transparent about that, um, Democrats think that hurts him immensely among black voters who would have been open to supporting him. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the I, I see your point, Patricia. I, I just think the idea of going with Herschel Walker as the ticket to increase support amongst black voters was a foolhardy one um, to begin with. Um, you know, aside from the normal kind of partisanship split um, that we were talking about here, Walker uh, Walker's comments about race usually uh, aren't uh, as inclusive enough as being understanding and empathetic towards cries for racial justice. Also, just I, I, I think the level of inarticulateness especially compared to Senator Warnock, I think is, is, is a non-starter for a lot um, of African-Americans. And so it looks like tokenism to a lot of African-American voters. And that would actually be a turnoff uh, to a lot to a lot of folks. So, I mean, I see the attempt, but it's like, you know, Herschel Walker is no Tim Scott. Um, he's no John James. Like there are other black Republicans who can sit and clearly articulate their stances and why they're Republicans. Walker's not there. And I, I think a lot of black voters would have seen we'll see through that. Well, but, but then, Rick, what what I I could hear that both Andre and Patricia make a point. I mean, Georgia Republicans got to start somewhere to find an African-American who may be a palatable candidate for them. And Walker may be a very perfect vessel, but what do they have? Who do they have? Well, but it's also like um, taking the easy way out. Okay, let's get Herschel Walker. If they really want to to attract African-American voters, and if they really want to expand their tent, it's really about policy support those programs and policies that widen your, your tent. And they don't show any inclination of doing that. So the easy thing is, all right, let's, let's put up Herschel Walker. And what, what the danger is for them is, okay, we lost the race we should have won again. That's their problem. Um, okay, thank you for that. Uh, we are going to not get to talking about Brad Raffensperger and Gabe Sterling's testimony tomorrow before the uh, January 6th committee because, unfortunately, we're just about out of time. But uh, we know that they will be there. We know certainly that we're going to hear uh, the uh, story again of the phone call, the infamous phone call in which uh, Trump asked uh, uh, Raffensperger to find 11,000-plus votes. Um and we'll be talking about it more on the show uh, tomorrow and certainly in the aftermath of the uh, hearing on uh, Wednesday's show. So I'm sorry today we're not going to get more into it because I'd love to have heard these three on that subject. And when I say these three, I'm talking about three of our favorite panelists, uh, Professor Andre Gillespie, uh, Rick Dent, and uh, Patricia Murphy, thank you for a really wonderful conversation on today's show, all three of you. I want to take just a quick moment to congratulate my colleagues at Lawmakers, the longest-running TV show in Georgia history. Donna Lowry is now uh, the host and has been for some time, and they won an Emmy for their work uh, just uh, over the weekend, and I congratulate them. The notion that a public affairs show about politics would win an Emmy tells you a lot about how important politics have become in people's lives these days. So congratulations to all of you 
at uh, lawmakers. That's it. We are completely out of time for today's show. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition of Political Rewind. Until then, I'm Bill Nugget. Please take care and stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody. <laughs>